0: Welcome to the Talking, Learning and Teaching podcast. In this episode, we're talking to the University of Hertfordshire's Lewis Stockwell about being an academic with chronic fatigue syndrome. Lewis is Principal Lecturer in Education at the University, working there for 10 years in academic education and more recently, outdoor environmental education. He is Programme Leader for the Postgraduate Provision in Outdoor Environment Education and his areas of interest include social justice pedagogies, environmental justice, environmental aesthetics, and outdoor experiential learning. Lewis is currently undertaking his PhD at a university in Scotland on aesthetic educational canoe journeying. Lewis has been diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome since 2018. He is also neurodivergent and advocates for greater inclusion in higher education teaching and learning for students and staff. Enjoy the episode. So, Lewis, welcome to the Talking, Learning and Teaching podcast. It's great to have you here. Thanks so much. Really great to be here. Brilliant. No, it's great to have you on. So today you're going to talk to us about your experiences of working as an academic with chronic fatigue syndrome, as well as talk to us about how the academic environment impacts upon that. Firstly, though, can you define for us what chronic fatigue syndrome
1: actually is? Yeah, I mean, I would love to be able to do that really clearly, but it is a condition which um, somewhat does define definition because it's not um, it's not diagnosed as as say like other kind of conditions are, but um, CFS or chronic fatigue syndrome or um, myalgic encephalomyelitis, which is what it's also known as. So it sometimes comes together as um, ME forward slash CFS or CFS ME it's a it's a long term condition which um hasn't got a single slight set of symptoms but the, probably the most common one which most people know is that it's um is that it's associated with extreme tiredness that isn't um improved upon by rest and that rest is not particularly um restful or rejuvenating in any way um, if you look at, say, the NHS website or more recently, the UK government's come out with um, some new work on um CFS, it's um, often more common in women um, and younger people and People tend to develop it between their um, 20s and their 40s as well. And there are some kind of like key characteristics, which I'll just kind of share with you. So you can kind of work out what we're talking about, um, because it also connects with um, the condition that probably people have heard about more, which is long COVID, um, because they they are um, almost identical, but they come from two different kind of sets of issues. So one is that it's... um, really debilitating and it's worsened by physical um, and cognitive activity particularly if somebody experiences like physical or emotional distress or if they're engaging in kind of like um, social activities it can become um, really tiring for somebody very quickly um, and can be quite anxiety inducing you can have um, what's called post-exertional malay which is like the worsening of symptoms but days after the activities. So you might be, um, in my case, say teaching something, um, good good afternoon session, and it's really exciting, really interesting. And then say on the Saturday, say if it was on a Thursday or something like that, you'd be really tired and often actually feel quite physically sick. So that kind of long-term or delayed um, impact is often disproportionate to those activities it can make you feel really really unwell in a way that you just think well why it to the to say the typical person it just doesn't make sense and sleep is often um For for many people with CFS ME, it's not a thing. People don't sleep very well um, or sleep um, is in no way rejuvenating. So you go to sleep and you don't feel awake at all um, or you feel awake for a very short period of time. And then, say, maybe within half an hour, you take a really um, a really sharp dip into feeling very tired again, so you either move between like broken or shallowed sleep or you have an old, um, an altered sleep pattern and things like that. and then you also have like a big one um, which is shared across a number of conditions um, and uh, neurodivergences, which is uh, cognitive difficulties. so the big big one that you get with chronic fatigue syndrome is brain fog. Um, and those with other um, neurodivergences also get brain fog as well. So it's it's that kind of, um, and I get it a lot uh, when I teach, I miss words. I lose words. You might not be able to do numbers particularly well. Speaking can become quite difficult. You might stutter. You might actually not be able to physically move your mouth as you would like. And then you have other issues like short term memory problems, like remembering people's names, a massive issue in the classroom when you've got loads of students Um, and also multitasking and dealing with the anxiety of multitasking. And then there's there's um, some other ones which um, I do personally have, which are around severe um, pain, which doesn't seem to make sense to uh, the activities that you're doing. Um, In my case, um, some people talk about having. Uh, pain which is associated with particular areas of the body so mine is in my hips and my legs so again teaching and I'm also an outdoor educator so teaching and being outdoors severe pain leg pain is a bit problematic and you can also get something um, which is around like sensitivity to sensory stimulation so again neurodivergences you might have people who like have ADHD or autism and their sensory stimulation can have a real kind of um a real impact um, on them as well um, and you get other things uh, like uh, racing heart rate you can feel quite dizzy or sick you get flu-like symptoms there's this really annoying thing which i actually have today which is a, a sore throat but you call it cfs throat and it becomes really itchy or it becomes it feels like you have um um it feels like you have this burning feeling at the back so lots of people during covid who had cfs were like oh i think i've got it i think i've got it because you have that quite horrible rawness at the back of your throat so it's not a particularly nice condition and i hope that people don't ever get it um but of course we know that people do and there are different severities of it as well so what i will say as kind of like respect for those who have it um that people do die from chronic fatigue syndrome and that's not known about quite a lot. Um, That's that's not known about, I should say. Um, People do die from the condition and there are really severe forms of the condition where people can't get out of bed, they can't feed themselves, uh, they rely on 24-7 care and then you have a more medium to mild forms and whilst mine does affect me in my everyday life, so it's life-limiting disability, um, mine would be classed as quite mild really although it actually in the in the grand scheme of things in my daily life it actually affects me quite a bit so the terminology is a bit uh challenging around the condition and there's a lot of uh discomfort in the community about the way the condition is described and spoken about yeah i mean so much there. I mean, thank you for yeah, that. That, was, that. No, no, it was no, <laughs> that was
0: an absolute, you know, education in learning about CFS or ME or whatever mm-hmm. terminology is used. I mean, just sort of outlining the terminology that's used, I think, is helpful. And obviously, you did talk about a lot of the main symptoms there. One thing that really struck me was this kind of um, the impact of kind of cognitive work on yeah. on your CFS, and that's what I wanted to explore next, actually, because obviously being an academic, we do lots of cognitive work, don't we? So, I mean, how does academic life impact upon your chronic fatigue syndrome and vice versa with all that sort of cognition that you're required to do as well as the physical work you're required to do because you obviously said you're an outdoor educator as well didn't
1: you? Yeah so I've kind of got the I don't think I'm particularly set up well for having chronic fatigue syndrome um, because I'm both a philosopher of education (laughs) so I spend either my time in books or my time outdoors and so I kind of think maybe maybe there's something deeper going on there Um, but yeah so Chronic fatigue is um, definitely impacts on academic life in in lots of different ways. Obviously, as you said, it's intellectually demanding. We do a lot of high level cognitive work. It's not a particularly easy job when it comes to managing different tasks. Um, And so it for me, it affects me in lots of different ways. So, you know, let's talk about teaching because, you know, we both love teaching. It's what we do. Being with students is both an enriching experience, engaging them outdoors in practical skills or being in the classroom sharing, you know, philosophy of education theories or pedagogies. They are both enriching activities in the moment, but they actually can make me feel very physically sick and very unwell Um, in that moment. um, I was supervising a clinical psychology student this morning and I had that kind of dizziness that um, is characteristic of CFSME and, you know, you have to work out how you're going to handle that situation. Sometimes you can just carry on and um, you can mask it. So, you know, in with neurodivergent students, we talk about masking a lot on neurodivergent academics. It's kind of similar with CFS, where you work out what you can mask and where you need to change your behaviour. Um, so, you know, slowing down, slowing down your speech. Um, letting the other person speak when you know, you know, so you kind of have to engineer the situation without letting that happen. It, it uh, without um yeah again words there you go without um letting it take over. I suppose is what I want to want to say there. Um, everything, for example, like from the commute to work, people kind of um, uh, say non-disabled people they don't necessarily get overly impacted by their commute i drive um but that can be quite stressful and it can be quite draining for some you know for some people all the way to you know standing up teaching can can be a real physical um challenge so for me it affects me in in the way that I actually practice as an academic, I have to think about how my workload is going to be managed. And that can obviously be problematic in a university um, because you're working within a system which is connected to other people's systems and timetabling, and and so it can be really um, challenging. Um, And what I would say, one of the challenges that I've really faced is actually asserting the fact that I have needs. You know, that's a real difficulty, I think, for lots of people who have disabilities who work in higher education, but elsewhere, but actually asserting the fact that, no, I need something and I shouldn't feel guilty for needing that. So there's a real tension, I think, for me between wanting to do something well, wanting to teach well, and then my body not meeting what my consciousness wants. I suppose that's the only way I can describe it. There's a real distinction there that I feel viscerally. you know that that's yeah. kind of where i'd say yeah i mean it, it's interesting what you said there
0: about needs and kind of the the challenges that come with asking for those needs to be met and, and and needing those needs to be met i mean what reasonable adjustments would be put in place for an academic with cfs for example
1: so this is a good question so it's not like it's, it has to be done on a case-by-case basis partly because of the equality act um and quite right too, um because it is, um It's not what you would call a kind of a typical condition. That's not great terminology, but, you know, we'll work with it for now. It's not like having a stable um, neurodivergence or a stable physical disability. And that makes it quite problematic if it's on the more severe end of mild. Because if you're on them, if you're, say, somebody with severe CFSME, you're unlikely to be working so you know so we just have to kind of remember that bit reasonable adjustments in my case have been around managing workload so that one i don't get deconditioned so that i don't rest too much because that's a problem but also that i don't get overwhelmed and i don't get to the point where i can't action any tasks and i can't um then not do my job so things like timetabling having um the timetable managed, you know, just like people who work part-time, they have non-contracted days. It's in my case, it's not that I don't work on certain days, just I work from home on certain days. And that's been made much easier by um the COVID pandemic, where this is now more the norm. So it's a bit easier to to manage. Other things are having rest breaks um in the day and if necessary, saying, you know, I'm gonna block out this part of my um data not be in meetings because meeting other people is really draining um and that be okay so reasonable adjustment you know that's that's kind of something that we spoke about with human resources with our, our people development group about that when when um when this all happened um other reasonable adjustments might be just being it, it being okay to sit down while teaching now i've never known any any institutions that you can't do that but you almost need permission in a way to say i'm going to have to teach in a different space and in a different way um and so it's sometimes it's not always about the formal um say adjustments like medical leave which you might need but actually some of those more cultural norms need to be challenged and need to be um engaged with in a in a healthy way and and i must admit um you may not often hear an academic say this, but I was really lucky or fortunate I should say to have a um an HR business partner who knew about COVID. Uh, sorry, wrong word, who knew about CFSME, um and who knew about how to manage it and to help me also assert what I needed with my line manager. Um so there was a bit of um There was a bit of work there that I also had to do on myself to ensure that those adjustments were put in place. Another adjustment was also having a rest. So I actually would go to my car. I would go away from the school. I would just sit in my car and I might listen to a podcast or I might um, actually have a nap. Um, That was kind of more of an informal one, but it was just I wouldn't be in a meeting. Therefore, I would just stop. And that was fine because the, the end goal was did I was I doing my job? Could I do my job? And if yes, then I that that was what we would class as a reasonable adjustment.
0: Yeah, I mean I was just going to segue into a into a follow-up question there. And that was, I mean, do you inform your students about your CFS? Is that something you're open about
1: with them? This is a good question. I've just written a book chapter on this <laughs> about um um the kind of different notions of professionalism in outdoor education and HE. And one of the things that I've I've written about is having a disability in uh the environment and and i tell all of my students that i am neurodivergent and that i have a life-limiting psychosomatic disability and the reason this a couple of reasons one is because i think it's really important that students know that i may have to behave differently in order for them to be taught and i think that's really important For the second reason which is that students then know that there might be an ally in the room because as we know the majority of students actually don't um, disclose that they have a disability um and i think that's both terrible because I believe that they should feel comfortable enough to do that, but also it's, you know, it's their right to do that. And also that I I want them to know that they're in a community where they're going to be supported if they do that and if they feel comfortable to do that. That's really important to me. So, yeah, I do tell them. And when you're in outdoor education, I tell them because it's a health and safety risk. So I tell them because... They might need to know that I'm not always going to be able to model good practice. You know, there's a bit about in outdoor education about modelling what you want a learner to do in not being an exception, as we would hope most educators uh, would kind of foster that. You know, we both rolled our eyes at that because I think, I think that <laughs> saying that we would, uh, you know, we're we're in dreamland there. I know. But in in outdoor education, there is a real Kind of sense that we shouldn't be asking students to do something that we wouldn't do ourselves but sometimes because of the disability i can't you know i can't take them to a um a point on a, an orienteering map because i can't get there because i won't be mm. able to get back or if i do i'll be very unwell yeah. so yeah i do tell them and i and i share that with them and i and i i would not expect them to share that with me necessarily but i say you know if you do want to talk I can put you in place with, I can put you in the right place to get support if you need that um, and help them kind of reduce that anxiety, which is often present with those learners who have um, neurodivergences or physical disabilities, because, you know, in most cases with big institutions like ours, it's always present that kind of worries, stress or or anxiety.
0: No, I think that's really good, that idea of sort of allyship, really, because I was doing a different Podcast episode a, a week or so ago, and we were talking about students with neurodevelopmental disorders. I,
1: I listened think, to that. I, I listened to that. Yeah, podcast, I, yes. yeah, it
0: was it was good, wasn't it? I think that John Devine, it was from uh, Buckinghamshire yeah. New University, and he was sort of saying that you know the the proportion of people in the population is about three three to four percent, but in sort of universities, it's closer to ten percent. So you can pretty much guarantee really that you are going to have students that are neurodiverse that have neurodevelopmental disorders in your classroom, and I think that. The idea of allyship is is really, Mm. really important, isn't it, in in that perspective? Uh, In our sort of pre podcast chat that we had a week or two ago, you you mentioned that academia can be quite anxiety inducing. Mm. I'm sure it is for yourself in, in lots of different ways. One of the things we talked about was this idea that academics perhaps never really switch off, which I'm sure for yourself, given the CFS, could be a potential problem i mean can you explain a bit more what you meant by that when we had that discussion
1: yeah i mean there's there's some um there's a couple of ways i think that happens for academics um and you know i speak from an education background and one thing if anybody listening has friends who are teachers is that they probably know that whenever they watch, you know, TV or they go into town or they go to the shops, everything is a resource, right? Everything is a potential resource for teaching and learning, and it's like, oh, I could use that for that, or I could do that, or oh, that's really interesting. They're talking about that issue. I'll just make a note, and it you don't you don't switch off. I think as an academic, it's not a, like a, it's not like a normal nine till five job because when you stop maybe teaching your class, you might be thinking about the next task, or you might be thinking about um, an issue that came up, or you might be, you know, if you're, say, a reflective or reflexive um, academic, you might be going, oh, did I do that right? Is is that is that, you know, did, did, did that work? So I think one of the things about that kind of switching off is that our work, because it's such a part of our cognitive identity, let's say, for kind of a better phrase. Hopefully that makes sense to people. You know, our thinking is partially us. You know, that's that's how we roll. It's very difficult to switch that off. And it's and and, unless we have ways of of. um, Of um, nurturing other parts of our identities, I think it's very difficult for that to be. um, for that to be managed um, well so for example I am a canoeist I also do watercolours I try to find ways of processing what's going on in my in my mind so that I can feel less anxious um, outside of work because I do think about work a lot it's an important part of my identity like for many academics they're academic identity is is a part of who they are that's how they would identify who they are and i think just like many other professions um but i think in this it not to say that academia is a special case but we do have to remember that you know when you get down to the moral value of what we do i like to think about it like this is that we are contributing to something much larger than ourselves if we're doing it right and therefore there is that kind of sense of responsibility to our subject, advocating on behalf of our subject, our students, our institutions, you know, and the like. So academia can be anxiety inducing, I think, because we, if we're doing it well, we care. Notice, you know, this, yeah, if we're doing it well, we care. <laughs> and I think when we care, it means that when things don't go well, or when things come under strain, it matters. It's not stuff that we just throw away. It's not stuff that we just ignore. You know, we're both very dedicated to learning and teaching, which means that our colleagues and our students matter a lot. Um, And it's part of that um, professional care, I think, where when things, either don't go well or just on a day-to-day basis, there is an underlying anxiety when you have any kind of neurodivergence or any kind of physical disability. You know, I think you've spoken about this on the podcast before um, about, you know, that many of the conditions, uh, you know, neurodivergences present with um, anxiety. It's the way they operate. Um, And it's the same with chronic fatigue um, because it's a psychosomatic condition. There's lots more going on than just the physical and, you know, I, I I worry about what people think. I want to make sure I do a good job and I want to make sure I do a good job in spite of having a life limiting condition as well. Um, and um, I think the very nature and culture of higher education at the moment is one that both Um, works on anxiety and works on people feeling anxious in certain circumstances to enable the job to be done, Um, which I know sounds a bit bit negative, really. But I think there is a bit of a, you know, we do have to do a bit of truth telling in a way, and we do have to recognise that it's not always a nice place to work whether that's at the institutional level or whether it's in the sector more broadly you know we've got broader issues at the moment um i'm sure most people listening to this will know about funding crises and um, strikes and all that stuff don't want to get into that too much but it's part of the culture it's part of what's happening in our work which means that we can't always easily switch off we can't always be calm in what we do um we can't always be at um, at ease with with what we do.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's so much of that that really resonated because I think one thing I was just reflecting on there. I mean, the, the nature of the role has expanded massively, isn't it? I mean, when I first yeah. think back to sort of when I first started teaching in HE compared to now, like, you know, now you're sort of expected to be a sort of semi digital learning expert. You're expected to know about sort of well-being and mental health related issues. Yeah. But, you know, the, the role in, and its requirements are so much larger, perhaps, than they were once before, which will come with a certain level of anxiety, won't it? I think mm. the other thing that <clears throat> really resonated was this idea of sort of it's difficult to switch off because the academic world is so closely tied to your identity. And this idea mm. of identity comes up a lot, actually, on the podcast. And it made me think of the of the whole sort of serious leisure principle you know the idea of you know you can make a career out of your leisure pursuits not an mm-hmm. occupational career but a career in a kind of broader sense mm-hmm. and it it can help with that kind of identity piece and i i think it's always really interesting to sort of listen to academics discuss those sorts of issues really because i i always find that there's there's a lot of agreement in this you know difficult to switch off it is your kind of entire identity and there's always that sort of you know wrestle that happens with you know switching off and switching uh, on yeah. and, and doing the job and finding time to sort of you know separate yourself from it again in our in our pre-podcast discussion you mentioned that you are a sunflower lanyard wearer yeah. could you tell yeah. us a bit more about what that means
1: yeah so one of the interesting things about having uh chronic fatigue syndrome along with say colleagues who might be um who might have ADHD, might have a form of um, autistic autistic spectrum condition or, or other conditions like that, is that when you look at folks like us, people wouldn't know you have a disability because we are, you know, sadly, very behavioristic beings and we look for cues and we look for things like that. And if we don't see it, we don't believe it. And that is a huge issue in chronic fatigue syndrome, um, as well as that people don't believe you have it from medical professionals all the way through to uh, colleagues. So it can be quite difficult. So um, I worked with one of my students um, who uh, was an undergraduate um, on a pathway on the one of the undergrad degrees I ran, which was around, um, oh, sorry, I worked on, which was uh, her subject specialism was around special education, needs, disability and inclusion. And she advocated on uh, behalf of a number of students as well as staff about getting hidden disabilities noticed. And that's what the Sunflower Lanyard does. It's a subtle-ish way of um, identifying yourself in and amongst a community that you have um, a hidden disability. And therefore, that means you might need some form of adjustment or, as I like to think about it and as I talk to my students about it, is it requires somebody to be curious rather than judgmental. Right, so it's a Walt Whitman phrase, Um, you know, we should be curious rather than judgmental. It requires somebody to go, okay, there's something, you know, something about you. I'm not going to ask you what it is, but I'm going to, you know, um, unless unless you bring it up, I'm going to be more open, more receptive to what you bring to the table and the way you bring it. So the sunflower lanyard is a way of, you know, visibly showing that you have a hidden disability whilst I, I like to think about it whilst also showing solidarity. To other people in the community who also have a hidden disability, like those, you know, those uh, students in higher education who don't currently have their kind of like what we call at our place study needs agreements or a diagnosis, um, you
0: know. Yeah, I mean, what have been your experiences of that? I mean,
1: are most people aware of what the lanyard means? Um, so ebbs and flows depending on the time of year. <laughs> it ebbs and flows depending on, on where, you're, where, where you are. But say our students union has been really good about promoting it. They were actually the first adopters of it in the university. So they actually, um, because this uh, student actually went to the students union, passed a motion, did all that wonderful stuff. Um, they adopted them, bought them and they said anybody with a hidden disability could um, wear one um, and get one for free. Um, so I think in certain parts of the student population it's quite well known and I think with staff it's kind of known but you know it's one of those things that certain areas of certain colleagues or certain groups of colleagues they're so engrossed in certain uh, certain aspects of their work that they don't attend to some of these kinds of things but it, it because I think again during COVID the sunflower lanyard was a way of explaining that somebody wouldn't be wearing a face mask. It has had more um, uh, social awareness, I would say, um, in the populace anyway, but it's still not um, it's still not universally known in the UK, for instance, but it is much better known. And there are kinds of um, posters and things up around um, my institution. And I know in other institutions where it's like, you know, if you see a sunflower lanyard, be kind be you know be um, receptive um, you know be supportive in a way that isn't invasive you know that kind of that kind of thing
0: yeah I mean I asked that because I do know plenty of instances where people were unaware of what the lanyard actually meant I mean I was lucky enough to to understand what it meant because that obviously Mm. worked uh, with a lot of disabled students in the past Mm. um, with hidden disabilities of course Um, so yeah it was just interesting to get your reflections on on wearing that lanyard and and what other people's sort of reactions to it were. We've reached the final question um, and it's a fairly big and quite a (laughs) philosophical one, I suppose. But I mean, as someone with a hidden disability, how accessible do you think higher education is for those working in it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I have thought about this question (laughs) we were looking at the pre-notes and then we were talking before. Um, And it's a toughie, this question, right? I mean... I think probably many people listening find higher education deeply frustrating because it's not particularly inclusive you and i both work in areas where we might well we were where we are dedicated to social justice you've got an expertise in udl i work with some wonderful colleagues who um share their insights about universal design for learning and and things like that and you know It's been around for a while, more inclusive ways of practising, but for some people still don't know about inclusive forms of pedagogy. Um, So how accessible is higher education from, say, the academic side? It depends the kind of institution you're at. My experience of being in higher education, and I, I suppose I didn't, um, haven't, haven't, we haven't spoken about this yet. I'm also doing a PhD alongside working full time, so I've actually got experience of two institutions. One's a post ninety two, and one is a Russell Group um, ancient university in Scotland. So you know, very, very different experiences here, and I have to say that there were. I know from the student perspective in both institutions my institution i work in is much more inclusive and much more set up for being accessible and making reasonable adjustments and supporting managers and staff to understand how to better support those with um, hidden disabilities or with a disability generally Other institutions that maybe get to rest on their um, reputation. I'm being very careful about how I'm wording this now. Um, Those who maybe don't have to care so much, let's put it, let's be blunt. Like people will be listening to this. Maybe those institutions that don't have to care so much, maybe don't make as many reasonable adjustments as they ought to under the Equality Act or just for any moral good reason. But I have to say my experience has been, and again, this is partly personality. I had a very good HR business partner who worked very hard to make sure that I had all the support in place. And we, you know, we were challenging systems everywhere. We went basically to say occupational health are not helping. Where do we go next? Go back, find another person. So is it accessible generally, though? It could be better. right? I think we could all accept that. But I think there are some real kinds of issues that say training programs for academics have to deal with which is things like higher education is anything but a neurotypical environment <laughs> I think if we just accept that as as the basis of higher education as a it is beautifully diverse with neurodiversity and it is beautifully diverse because of the diversities within higher education generally but we engage with the environment or we are expected to engage with the environment where being non-disabled or non-neurodivergent is the norm does that i hope that makes sense where you know i don't want to use the kind of normal typical kind of language but we are expected to behave as though everybody doesn't have a neurodivergence or doesn't have a disability and what we then don't have is that sensible sounding language to give voice to the reality of experience of neurodiversity or disability. And whilst there can be policies on the ground, whilst there's the Equality Act for good or ill, certain, you know, it does some good stuff and maybe it could be better, higher education as the promise of being more inclusive, more accessible. But I think we're a long way off um, having a more equitable system, a more equitable environment for, for ac- accessibility, and not just accessibility, but also being included. I don't think higher education has an issue, you know, or organisations or people have an issue with accessibility. It's what you then do with people when they're here whether they're employees or whether they're students. And it's at that point, I think we do a lot of damage or a lot of harm if we don't have, like I had, an excellent HR business partner saying, no, you know, this is what you need to do. You still have to do your job, but we can find ways of making your job work for you and work for the institution. And I think we don't have those kinds of conversations enough. Mm. Um, So, you know, HE in the most part... I think it needs greater diversity and it needs to include more people with disabilities, not just in a tokenistic way, obviously, but it needs to be much less centred on trying to reproduce the norm. And that is one of the big issues we have, I think.
0: Yeah, no, I think I think that was really well answered, actually, because I think it's (laughs) no, no, absolutely. It is difficult, isn't it? Because I think certainly there are you know, aspects that are very accessible, inclusive, etc. But then there are also areas where it's really critical, isn't it, to kind of examine the environment and and look for where those barriers might be. I mean, somebody told me a story uh, recently about, you know, they they heard a colleague that needed to do a sort of right to work check. Um, and they were told that they had to come on to campus in person to do this. And they like live oh, yeah. 400 miles away. It's like, well, you know, there's a clear barrier there, isn't there? I mean, you know, there must be another way of doing it than that. And it's yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, there's a lot of progress being made. But I think also in some areas there is still work to be done. Lewis, it's been an absolute education. I've really enjoyed <laughs> that discussion that we've had today. Thank I mean, it'd be, be great to get you back on.
1: It'd be great to get you back on at some point in the future if you'd be up for it. Definitely, for sure. It's been really great. And I'm, you know, I'm really glad you're doing this. I think it's right at the very heart of what, you know, a good university experience should be about and what good higher education should be about, Kevin. So I think, you know, it's it's great that you're doing this.
0: Oh, thanks. Well, I'll take that feedback. So uh, on that (laughs) note, thanks ever so much, Lewis. And we'll get you back on at some point in the future.